Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today on the podcast, we have with us Bonnie Christian. Welcome to the podcast, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me. Bonnie Christian is a journalist who writes opinion pieces on foreign policy, religion, electoral politics, and more. She is editorial director of ideas and books at Christianity Today and a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank. Her writing has appeared at outlets including the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Politico, Reason, and the Daily Beast. She's a graduate of Bethel Seminary and lives in Pittsburgh with her husband and twin sons. She is the author of A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. That was published in 2018. And then more recently, she has published Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. That came out in 2022 and received Christianity Today's 2023 Award of Merit in Politics and Public Life. And that book will serve as the platform, the launching pad for our discussion today. We're going to be talking about that topic of the knowledge crisis, our contemporary knowledge crisis. So let let me begin by asking you this, Bonnie. What was your impetus for writing this book? What's the book all about? As you sat down to write the book, what exactly were you hoping to accomplish? Sure. Well, so I it came out of a lot of the, the journalism work that I do day to day, which I have these two books, but on the average week, most of what I'm writing is, is not a book. <laughs> um, it's it's usually a, a an article to, to be published and have a, a much shorter lifespan, um, something much more tied to the current news cycle. And so in, I guess I would say like 20... 17, 2018, on through like, I don't know, 2020, around there, those years, I found myself coming back to a lot of themes about knowledge and um, information and community and how we decide what is knowable and what is trustworthy and who is trustworthy um, and and how we process information and and talk to each other and communicate, um, you know, what we believe to be true and false. And I gradually started to see those as sort of pieces of a larger whole and thought, you know, it would be good to explore this in a little bit more depth in a format with hopefully a little bit more staying power than, you know, some of these short term articles that I'm putting out. Yeah, that's really helpful. And so in terms of your thesis, if you were to kind of boil down your thesis or maybe if, if thesis isn't the best word, but um, more of your aim in the book, how would you maybe put that forward for us? Yeah, so I think the first, I don't know, two-thirds to three-quarters of the book, something like that, um, is pretty descriptive. And it's about getting at, like, what is the knowledge crisis that we're talking about here? Um, And describing not just sort of that idea in the big picture, but specific facets facets of it in how we talk to each other in public life. And that, you know, especially is about politics, and but not exclusively. Um, And it's especially online, but again, not exclusively. Um, so it's not just a politics book or just a like social media book. Um, th- those are inevitably big parts of it. Um, and then the latter, you know, quarter to a third of the book is about okay, what do we do about this um, in a in a concrete way? Things that we can be doing specifically in our own lives. Um, it's not a, a policy conclusion like we need to pass these laws. It's about 
Like, what are you specifically going to do, um, you know, in these hours of the day that you are consuming content? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea of, of the knowledge crisis, just in the very short version, is I think that sense of um, unease that is familiar to probably anyone at this point who is regularly consuming news media um, and political content, um, again, especially online, but not only there, um, in America, where, you know, it, it's that feeling of uncertainty about, uh, is this information I'm encountering reliable? Is it trustworthy? How do I sort of parse out what is believable and and what isn't? Um, and, and that feeling of, I guess, a, a sense of like chaos and, and overwhelmingness where there's just so much information coming at us all the time that even, you know, well-intentioned and reasonably well-informed people struggle to keep up and to make sense of things. Mm. Yeah. So you frame this book as a Christian take. Um, you're seeking to address this dilemma, the the knowledge crisis or the information crisis from a you're, you're seeking to do so from a distinctively Christian perspective. In some ways, we could maybe classify your book. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but almost like a book on Christian ethics, not broadly speaking, but at least... Well, that's specific... how Amazon classifies it. <laughs> okay. So, well, yeah. yeah. So at least a particular ethical sort of framework. Like you said, it's not about public policy per se, not that it, mm-hmm. this topic is irrelevant to that, but the book concludes with very practical things that mm-hmm. Christians can implement, that people can implement. Um, but I could see that raising the question, um, you know, what does all of this actually have to do with our Christian faith? You know, I call this podcast Church Theology Podcast, podcast on the church, for the church. You know, isn't this, you know, this is politics, this is what have you, like you said. What does this mm-hmm. actually have to do, this whole knowledge crisis? Does Christianity yeah. even speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's related to faith on a few different levels. Um, one is just that, like, as you know, as Christians, we think of ourselves as like people with a some special access to truth, right? Like, we we think we know the truth about the way the world is and who God is and like what our purpose is as people. Um, and so, we if we are like people of the truth, and and Scripture repeatedly makes connections between. Um, you know, like knowledge and behavior, our, our understanding of truth should be affecting how we live. Um, if we're people of the truth, we should have a feel for truth. We should not be um, easily deceived. We should not be uh, easily misled. And and of course, that's the case about theological things, things that explicitly pertain to God, right? But it also should be the case more broadly. And that's not to say that like being a Christian makes you automatically right and knowledgeable about everything because very obviously it doesn't, but it does, should mean that we have a a concern for for finding and knowing truth and aren't sort of um, flippant uh, or or careless about how we encounter knowledge and how we assess truth claims. Um, and so, even though I think this knowledge crisis that I'm talking about is a broad issue that affects, you know, people of, of any faith or none at all in America. Um, I think for Christians, there is a special urgency to to deal with this because it's not, the, the subtitle mentions the knowledge crisis, and I don't want us to think about that as a sort of external thing. Um, like, this is not a book about misinformation. 
you hear people talk about misinformation a lot and like, yeah, there's a lot of bad information out there. There always has been. It's a little more accessible now for sure. There's a higher quantity of it for sure. But my concern really isn't the information. It's a, it's us as knowers and consumers of that information. And so that's very intimately related to, you know, our faith, to who we are as people, how we think about things. Um, and then the other two ways that I would say it's specifically relevant to Christians, one is in the the solutions, um, or uh, solution is maybe too strong <laughs> of a word. I don't think there's easy fixes, but in the, the ways to address this that I talk about at the end, and I won't get into those yet because I think we're going to come to that later. Um, those are, are definitely related to our faith. Um, and the other is just that, you know, there's not a, for most of us, there's not a super bright line between what we think about um, in our faith and, and what we're thinking about sort of in other big picture, uh, like philosophical stuff. And I think for, for the average person, politics outside of church politics is the place where you're most likely to be thinking about like big ideas right like you know what is just what is good what what things should we be pursuing together um in public life and because of that there's there's just an inevitable overlap there like these are the two faith and politics the two big arenas in which ordinary people tend to get around to thinking about like what should our society look like and so i think if you have really confused um, corrupted thinking in political spaces, um, it's going to affect your faith sooner or later, one way or another. Yeah, because that that touch that subject area politics mm-hmm. touches on such big questions, such big mm-hmm. issues that to go wrong there will obviously have some contaminating effects in your faith, likely, which we do see at times. Yeah, and that's not to um, say like bad politics will make you not be a Christian or something, right? But yeah, there's going yeah. to be influence back and forth. Right. Yeah. So you're in many ways, like I said, this book could be categorized, at least Amazon does as ethics, you know, (laughs) and in many ways, your solutions are not that policy is relevant, but your focus is what we might call virtue, the Mm -hmm. like, like, so epistemology is a word that you use that if folks aren't familiar with that word, that's basically um, the study of how we know things, how we can know things. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, looking at epistemology as a matter of virtue, like, this is an area that Christians should concern themselves with. The, the Christianity, like your book can be a distinctively Christian book on this subject because Christianity is concerned with virtue. Christianity has things to say. There's there's resources within our Christian faith to actually address the knowledge crisis. Like there's things within our Christian faith, like humility, and we'll get into more of these as we talked about. But we can actually look to Christianity to help us in this area. The mm-hmm. other thing, if I can just... I'm kind of recapping what you said, but maybe also building on it is as Christians, our faith is not privatized to just sort of concerned with me and myself and I, but we want to see, we want to engage the world around us Christianly. We, we, we care about Christians care about ethics. We also care about social ethics. So we want to see like, how do I engage society around me? How do I engage things like politics Christianly? And if we're malformed in our thinking in those areas because of a knowledge crisis, that's not that's not going to help us do that. And so, yes, of course, we as Christians, we want to care about, you know, having right theology and right doctrine. But we also want to care about right application of those things, even into the social order. And so how we care about knowledge, which obviously affects how we're going to navigate the social order. It's a relevant topic for Christians. The other thing, too, is and you hinted at this as well, is that, you know, as Christians, it's it's not a peripheral matter, um, this whole idea of knowledge. Like, 
knowledge, belief is so central uh, to Christianity. In fact, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, um, he's not a Christian, but he writes a history of Christianity. He argues that Christianity was either the main factor or one of the main factors in sort of centralizing the idea of belief within as a like a central concept to religion. Mm. Um, and so Christianity, like arguably, at least Tom Holland argues, like you can see how Christianity would put belief as such a central thing. It's the means by which we are saved, trusting in Christ. And of course, that faith has content. It's not mm-hmm. just um, relying on Christ, but then knowing who that Christ is on whom we rely. And so even the gospel, the gospel in the, in the New Testament, it's called the word of truth. So mm-hmm. truth is not some peripheral thing to us as Christians. We care deeply about knowledge. And we might say, well, if I meet a Christian who, like, why does this all matter, this whole knowledge crisis? If I can meet a Christian who knows the gospel and they're deep into conspiracy theories and going down the rabbit hole, why should I care? They still believe the gospel. But if I had a computer whose system processor was jacked up, even if it could run a program, you know, get some some functions done that I wanted it to get done, I would still be, I would still say, yeah, but the computer's not healthy. And we want to be, as Christians, we want to be healthy as we process knowledge, as we go about thinking about knowledge. Um, and we shouldn't just sort of partition these areas off as if they're separate from our discipleship, especially when our discipleship is so centered on what we believe to be the truth. Hmm. Um Let's unpack a little bit more of that knowledge crisis, though. You started to kind of say, you explaining the knowledge crisis in terms of this feeling where we have this sense of like, what do I actually believe? Like, what, what, what resources, what, what knowledge or what, uh, like, what media should I be looking to? What is actually true? What's fake? Can you maybe elaborate on what that sort of knowledge crisis looks like? A little bit more on the ground in terms of like how we've gotten here, maybe some of the contributing factors to it. Sure. I mean, I think it's hard not to start with um, the the technological changes of of the internet because that's so closely related to um, a lot of pieces of this. The way that it uh, exposes us to so much more information than really has has ever been the case for ordinary people in, in throughout history. Um, an example that I, I like to give, and I think I give this in the book, is that, you know, if it were in, in the mid-90s and you were um, sharing articles with your friends and family members the way that we do now, you know, just very casually, routinely on, on Facebook, but of course, Facebook doesn't exist. It's the 90s, right? So you, you're like snipping stuff out of newspapers, you're going to the Xerox store, you're getting your 150 copies, you know, however many Facebook friends you have. You package them all up in envelopes, you put in a Polaroid picture of yourself, you mail it off, um, you write a little note that's like, I think this is really important, please read. You do this maybe, you know, several times a day, right? Because you share multiple news articles a day. Um, people would think you were crazy, like that is the behavior <laughs> yeah. of a crank, nobody likes that. And now we just treat that as like routine, well-informed citizen stuff. Um, and what I would suggest is that actually, no, there is kind of something still cranky about that, even though um it's it's a lot easier it's it's not it doesn't take up your whole life now obviously right so it's a little less weird but but maybe there's still something a bit strange about the way that we are all like these self-appointed pundits people who you know don't work in media it's not not your job to be doing this and yet here we are consuming consuming all the time and then spreading information as well um and maybe information that we don't super have a capacity to vet very well um and so I think that that, um, 
that's a big part of it. The, just the, the quantity of information that comes at us through a mix of traditional and social media and the way, especially on social media, that the, the personal and the public are mixed, right? So you have sort of this chaotic, um, it doesn't feel chaotic, so we're so used to it, but but it, it really is pretty chaotic to have like your aunt is posting a news article about like a war and then the next photo is like your childhood friend's new baby and then the next photo after that is like um you know a, a minions meme about donald trump right <laughs> you're just dumping mm-hmm. from one thing to the other and it's very disorienting and we think that this is like an okay way to consume information and i would suggest that it's super not <laughs> um and that uh it it's almost impossible, I think, to stay clear-headed in an environment like that, but that's the environment in which we all find ourselves. Yeah. And you might say even just the increasing polarization too, and how social media um, leverages that, uh, what sort of captures the eyeballs is oftentimes Mm -hmm. what creates fear and what creates anger. And so... There is, I've done several other podcasts if folks want to listen to those with like Jim, uh, Jay Kim on Analog Church and, and others who, uh, Brett McCracken, his book on the wisdom pyramid. There's a lot of stuff. Even Netflix has a documentary called The Social Dilemma where you can kind of get a sense of just that's largely focused on like social media. Um, mm-hmm. but we're, we're probably largely aware, most of us, of this increase in information, increase in things that may actually be disinformation. Um, and, and I guess one of the questions then that you deal with in the book is what sort of consequence does this knowledge crisis have on us? What's the impact? And you, and your, uh, your subtitle is, uh, it's kind of the answer, I guess, breaking our brains, polluting our politics and corrupting Christian community. But can you elaborate on, on why you see it that way and, and what exactly that looks like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the brain brokenness, um, is, is familiar to uh, to anyone who's a little bit too online, um, in which I include myself. But it, you know, it's for example, I have a, an older relative who we can be talking about something totally unrelated to politics. Politics is not in the picture at all, and some word or phrase will pass through the conversation that reminds him of some you know recent current event in politics, something that he's heard talked about on. Um, his medium of choice, which is conservative talk radio. Um, and by conservative, I mean like, uh, you know, raging anger fests as the, the medium tends to encourage. Um, and that one word or phrase in this totally non-political conversation, like often with my small children, um, will just set him off. And all of a sudden he's like ranting about Joe Biden. Now I'm not a Joe Biden fan, right? But like that's brain, that's a broken brain. Like it's just not appropriate to bring that into the conversation, especially with little kids around. Like, and the fact that this otherwise very normal, very nice, like very well-intentioned man goes there and that he doesn't even realize how insane it is that he's making that leap in the middle of our utterly non-political conversation, that's a broken brain. Um, To have that, that level of obsession that you're getting pulled out of ordinary family life to rant about politics, you've gone too far, something is bad. Um, I think polluting our politics hardly needs much explanation at this point, as we all know how bad things are. Polarization is a big part of it, for sure. Um, You know, just operating in bad faith is a big part of it, refusing to 
um, you know, even grant when someone on the other side is is doing a good thing, doing the right thing. There's a there's a C.S. Lewis quote um, in I think Mere Christianity where he talks about like if you hear about some bad thing and then it comes out later that actually it wasn't actually that bad. Um, is your response to say like, oh, good, like my opponents are not as bad as I thought they were. That's great. Or is your response to sort of like try to cling to that original version of events that made them out to be worse than they are? I think we do that as a society a lot. Like we we always want the worst version to prove how truly evil the other side is. And then corrupting Christian community, um, something that I share a lot in this regard is um, repeatedly while during and before um, writing this book, I, I would hear from pastors, um, both in interviews I did, in like other people's unrelated news articles that I did not write, just like in the wilds of social media, um, I would hear from pastors that, and it was almost verbatim, you know, I get my congregation an hour to a week, um, and Tucker Carlson or MSNBC or whoever, the, you know, their preferred Twitter, Facebook, whatever their preferred media source is, gets them 10, 15, 20 hours a week. And I can't compete with that. Um, and what they were really speaking about was discipleship, um, that mm -hmm. these these media sources were becoming um, a, a more constant and effective form of discipleship than anything that was happening in the church house. Um, and that that in many cases, not always, but in many cases, especially in congregations that have political differences within them, which is increasingly rare, but there are still some, um, would lead to, you know, division in the church. And um, and even if the, the church was politically unified and thus not having conflicts among members, um, you know, the, the pastor would feel like he was preaching things and it was just sort of like water rolling off the duck's back because it didn't really matter what he said on Sunday. He wasn't the primary voice speaking into their lives. Um, and those congregants would tell you, you know, uh, cable news isn't discipling me, but in practice it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a form of catechesis. It's a, it's a new catechism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it is interesting. It's provocative, but also potentially um, illuminating to put it in the terms of discipleship where we think it's more innocuous, but then to call it a form of discipleship, actually sort of like John's apocalypse revelation, mm -hmm. like it unveils what's actually going on. We're actually being mm -hmm. discipled and malformed. Um, and I think, I mean, you know, I, I have increasingly, um, been able to witness, unfortunately, um, the degree to which the knowledge crisis is um, causing disunity within churches, maybe mm. being more in a city. Uh, so we're in Milwaukee. Um, you, you have a little bit more political diversity among Christians um, than maybe in certain other areas, at least our city. Um, it's more porous politically. And so you, mm. you, you just, and knowing other pastors and other churches, even the other day I was speaking to someone who had been recently visiting our church, uh, a new visitor to our church, and they were talking about a situation that they were coming from where a lot of their church just was kind of torn asunder through a lot of these political um, divisions. And they had a lot of friends from other churches where the same thing happened, which is unfortunate. It seems increasingly uh, common. Um, and so when we don't, when we, when we fail to have a, a similar shared set of truth or, or, or at least um, who is it that said you can, you can uh, debate. We can we can debate 
what to do with the facts, but you can't make up your own set of facts kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Like when we don't share the same set of facts, so to say, um, we don't have enough cohesion to stay together. And then we start viewing the other, the other, the folks on the other side with, with, uh, a lot of skepticism. Um, and so it becomes increasingly unhelpful even to our ability to have cohesive community. Um, let me, let, let's get, kind of get into a little bit more of some of the specifics now. Um, so like you said, in the first, maybe two thirds of the book, you kind of walk through the nature of the knowledge crisis more towards the middle. You pick up the bulk of the book. You pick up various examples of the way the crisis is manifesting or maybe some of the contributors of the crisis. And what I'd like to do in each of these is to ask what's exactly ha happening here? How are we experiencing the knowledge crisis in each of these? And then secondly, how can we respond, especially as Christians? Like what are the ways our Christian faith in particular can help us respond differently? So the first one is just the idea of media, whether that's the current shape of traditional media or even the emergence of a new media, social media. Um, so let me ask those two questions. We can take the first, like what what's exactly happening here? How are we experiencing the knowledge crisis in terms of media? Yeah, well, so in, in terms of traditional media, the and we have polling on this, this isn't just my perception, but the, the sort of standard public idea of what's wrong with the press is that um, journalists are lying to you on purpose and they're doing it for political gain for their own side. Um, and, and the, the most common version of that telling is that they're, they're doing it as liberals, as progressives to benefit the Democratic Party. You can get a left wing version too, though, where it's, you know, to benefit big corporate interests. Um, and so a lot of people think this, if you say what's wrong with the media, that's what they'll tell you. What I would suggest, <laughs> uh, as a member of the media, um, but having been inside like a number of different newsrooms for, for most of my career, I've been a, a freelancer. And so I've worked with a, a wide variety of newsrooms, um, both, uh, you know, on the, the more mainstream end of things and the more, um, I've, I've worked with Christian outlets, with libertarian outlets, more progressive outlets, more conservative outlets, a whole range. Um, and what I would say is that journalism as an industry has uh, got some real challenges right now, for sure. Um, but journalists lying to you on purpose um, for politics, that's not the, the issue at hand. Um, and that's not to say that you can never find a dishonest journalist. You can, typically exposed by other journalists. Um, it's not to say that journalists never get things wrong. We definitely do. Um, and it's certainly not to say that all media outlets are of equal quality because there's a lot of like really garbagey stuff out there um, that that shouldn't even deserve the name uh, journalism. Um, but thinking about like sort of standard, like reasonably credible, trying to do real like solid journalistic work outlets, um, the the problems that I would identify are a lot more mundane and a lot more about business pressures because the media is a business and is sub subject to market pressures just like everyone else. Um, and the I go into this much in much greater depth in the book, of course, but the really short version is that the the rise of the internet took away um, how how the media makes our money, and we're still trying to figure out how to do it. <laughs> um, and so. There's this massive decline in newsroom jobs, like journalism jobs are just disappearing. Advertising money is pennies of what it used to be. Nobody wants to subscribe to anything anymore. Like on the, there's a little bit of a resurgence in that, but I'm sorry, you can probably hear my kids right now. Um, okay. They're yelling outside my office door. 
Um, but uh, on the internet, you know, we all feel entitled to every content we encounter for free. Like we're offended when we come across a paywall. Um, and so attempting to deal with that new business environment um, and responding, not necessarily in the greatest ways, but responding in ways to try to keep the lights on um, has led to problems of just trying to work too quickly, trying to put out too much content, not giving journalists time to develop the expertise they need to do their work well. Um, and that those kind of more mundane things are, are contributing to a lot of the problems that people see. And one of those one of those reactions um, is what you could call a bias towards like excitement or or less charitably like sensationalism, um, and that is very closely related, I think, to the problems we see in social media, which is essentially um, it's a supply and demand issue. That every time you are clicking on something on you know on Facebook, looking through on a headline, you're sending a tiny signal to news outlets saying this is what I want more of. Um, and what we want more of, uh, not as evidenced by what we'll tell you what we want more of, but by what we actually click on. What we want more of is sensationalized, like very exciting garbage um, that inflames all of our emotions and makes the people we dislike look terrible um, and makes us look really good and plays into all our preconceived notions. Um, and so that's what we're encountering on social media. And that's what in sort of like the marketplace of, of ideas, that's what we are asking journalists to produce more of for us. And unfortunately, uh, some journalists do. And then we go and share it on Twitter. Hmm. What, what about, um, I can imagine, and this is kind of a question that I'm interested for myself too, is um, it can be, it, it's not terribly difficult, even if you're assuming journalists are, are not, actively trying to deceive and are trying to be honest. It's also mm -hmm. not difficult at times to detect maybe even unintended, if you're giving the most benefit of the doubt, unintended mm -hmm. ways that maybe bias is coming through. Like I'll listen to uh, like journalism on, on the radio or something, not like talk opinion radio, but actual journalism. And even mm -hmm. then you find some bias seeping through in the way things are portrayed. Um, mm -hmm. like maybe speak to the person who's skeptical that, that you're saying, Hey, journalists, yeah. they're not just lying to you. Um, why should we, why should we believe you? Yeah. I mean, so I think, a, a few things I would say, one is, um, first, like the, the, the narrative that like all journalists are, are liberal Democrats, that there, there is some truth to that. Like there are a lot of journalists who, um, who don't vote or don't donate to political parties in an effort to like maintain some distance and some neutrality. But among those who do, um, the like donation records that we have show that it's like 90%, something like that to Democrats, very high rates. Um, not, not a lot of journalists donating to Republicans or registering as Republicans. Um, and so that is true. Like if, if we're thinking about sort of your average journalist at a, at a, you know, sort of a mainstream center outlet. And I would say like, mainstream in America means kind of like center left, typically, um, you know, not like a, a socialist, um, as some would have it, but but definitely a bit to the left of center. Um, yeah, that is the reality, especially among I think younger generations of journalists. When we're talking about like, bias, and I seeping into coverage, um, some of that's inevitable. And this the older standard of like, we're going to be completely objective, there's a lot of value and there's a lot to like in that. But I think it it did uh, sort of conceal the reality that journalists were never 
completely objective. Like as humans, mm. we're not completely objective. And that's not because they're trying to lie to you. It's because they're, they're people and people have biases and they often affect us in ways that we don't realize. Um, even the decision of, is this story worth covering, right? Like mm. that's, that's an, a, a matter of opinion. So even if the report you write is completely neutral um insofar as it's you know humanly possible the decision to cover it or not like to some extent that's going to be decided by like what you think is important in the world and that's just a reality i don't think that's avoidable um and and pretending that that's not um i don't know bias is like seems so negative i don't really think it's a negative thing that you made that decision someone had to make that judgment call of is this worth covering or not do people need to know about this or not is that a form of bias yeah, but I don't think it's a bad thing. It just is. Um, I would say, though, that where we run into trouble is not necessarily that, um, that you know, there's a, a, a general lean among a lot of journalists politically, um, but that you don't have enough um, ideological or even like life experience, diversity in the newsroom to be able to identify um, blind spots because journalists have blind spots, you know, just like everyone else. And so it is not, it's not uncommon at this point, depending on the size of an outlet, you could have a whole newsroom where nobody's ever been to church. And that's not because they're like not hiring Christians on purpose. It's not because they like don't want someone who's been to church. It's just like, it just happens. It can, it can happen that way. Like I've been in um, in conversations where let's say like, Bonnie, can you take this story? Can you cover this story? Because like, I frankly don't know what's going on here. Um, the problem is if there's no one that you can turn to and say, can you take this story, this religion story, this church story, because I don't know what's going on here. Well, then either someone covers it and covers it poorly because they don't know, or they say, well, we can't do this story justice. None of us know what's going on here. So let's just not cover it. And either way, Christians are going to end up feeling slighted, right? Um, and so I think that kind of, um, there's there's no ill intentions there, but there is real ignorance um, and, and maybe not necessarily the best way of handling that ignorance. Um, and, and like, you know, that's not a good thing. Uh, I would say the best way to help address that is to have like more Christians in newsrooms. Um, to have someone there who does have the subject matter expertise to say, hey, we're getting this wrong. Like this needs to, this is what this means. This is why these people think that way. Um, that That's very important to have that kind of voice available to correct the coverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe simply making a distinction between bias and like deceit. Like it's one mm -hmm. thing for, for people to have bias, which we all do. Even the New Testament has bias, right? The gospel writers mm -hmm. aren't writing some just purely neutral account, they're trying to persuade you that Jesus is the Messiah. So bias isn't necessarily yeah. a bad thing. It can be unhelpful. So mm -hmm. I don't think we're saying that. Um, <laughs> but bias is also different than deceit, like going out and like trying to like spread in misinformation or a lie or something like yeah. that. I mean, or one thing that I, yeah. One thing that I do think is good about social media um, is that because of how many journalists are Twitter addicted, <laughs> frankly, um, but because journalists are out there sort of speaking publicly as themselves, and it's not that hard to figure out what their personal views are, 
if you know where a journalist lands politically, and again, I'm talking about someone who is like not intentionally trying to deceive you, but whose views are perhaps shaping their coverage. If you know what those views are, then when you read their articles, it's easier to separate out like, okay, you know, he, this is the policy he wants. That's why he's he's including this interview and not that interview. But, you know, I can see these these the facts he's presenting are fair. Um, yeah, as you said, to, to be biased, to bring a perspective to your work. Um, I think that's there's nothing wrong with that. It needs to be clear, like when you're sharing opinion and, and why, you know, to, to, in what ways perhaps your your perspective is influencing the choices that you're making and the writing that you're doing. Um, but there are many like very ideological outlets um, that I both agree and disagree with that I would say are still trustworthy because they're still concerned with truth. They're also relating their opinion. They're very biased, but they're concerned with truth. And then there are also outlets that are very biased and that aren't concerned with truth. And that's a much more important difference in my mm -hmm. mind than are they biased or are they or not, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. you can advocate for your views till the cows come home, but are you also concerned with being factual and being fair and, you know, representing your opponent's positions truthfully, that those are much more important questions than are they biased? Yeah. For sake of time, let's move to the next one, which is okay. you, you cover the topic of the mob, as you put it, or uh, maybe some are familiar with the term cancel culture. What's going on here? How does this uh, contribute to our knowledge crisis or how is this an example of our knowledge crisis? Yeah, so the, the basic idea of cancel culture is sort of a, a public shaming process that punishes people for um, bad things or things that are perceived to be bad that they've said or done. We're not talking about criminal behavior here. We're talking like nothing that could be punished in a court of law, um, but things that are socially deemed unacceptable and are punished not by some sort of like interpersonal reaction interaction between you know the perpetrator and the the person they've actually harmed. Um, but by like this vast online mob, typically on social media, um, and often involving like professional consequences, like you said a rude thing on video, you should lose your job. That's sort of like the archetypal account um, of, of cancel culture. Uh, and so the reason I included it is that it's, it's very much, um, it very much affects how we talk to each other. If you have sort of this fear lurking in the back of your mind that if you say or do the wrong thing in public, um, that's really going to constrain what you're willing to say. Um, and in some cases, yeah, the things people get canceled for are bad, right? But like some cases the charges are fair. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the the consequences, like the mob coming after you, that that's appropriate. But in some cases, like the offense really is offensive. Um, in other cases, though, uh, what someone said or did is something that two years ago, five years ago, wouldn't have been considered offensive. And not all of us are as up on the rapidly changing social norms as others. And so sometimes you have cases where people are like legitimately did not know that what they said would not be received well. Um, and then I think for a lot of people, there are people who have never said or done anything that would be cancelable, if you will. Um, but they're scared of that prospect. And so rather than risk unwittingly violating a norm, right? Like they're not going out there with ill intentions. They're not trying to offend people. You know, they maybe have a horror of offending people. But rather than, than risk that, it's better to just be quiet. 
because there is no, we don't really have a, a path back from, from cancellation that's sort of like standardized in the way that the process of, of shaming people is sort of fallen into this pattern. Um, and so, you know, sometimes people talk about like, oh, so-and-so got uncanceled. Um, but that's, that's more of like a one on one by one basis, right? Like there's, we don't have a way of really handling repentance and forgiveness and restoration well. And so that has a chilling effect on, on our conversations because nobody wants to find themselves the one out in the cold. Yeah. So let's move to that second question then. Um, how should we respond as Christians? Like how does our Christian faith specifically help us here? You mentioned like we don't have a path back and mm -hmm. a category for repentance. Maybe mm -hmm. help us with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know, frankly, how we do that in public um, on the vast scale that social media makes possible. Um, I think we can can and should be thinking about like, are we sort of playing out that kind of behavior on a small scale among ourselves in our communities or our congregations? Um and it, you know, there, there, there should be. We should have have paths in those situations for, for repentance and for, um, you know, not not forgiveness automatically or easily given, but for restoration when it is appropriate, when true repentance has occurred, um, when it when that's like the the suitable outcome, um, which is very difficult to speak of this in, in such broad terms. But mm -hmm. you know, I think we as as Christians that the the, the option the possibility of of repentance and redemption obviously is very very core to what we believe um in the public square you know you it's not like you can stop it right it's not like you can yeah, personally yeah. forgive the person who's been canceled and that fixes it and in fact i don't even think you know if they haven't offended against us uh, we don't even have forgiveness to grant for them um and so i think the really the best thing that we can do most of the time is simply not participate like as you see a new wave of anger coming through your your social media timeline of you know we're all mad at this person now we've got to throw them out of play society like that is just not even if even if what they did again is legitimately bad and sometimes it is that's just not something that we need to be participating at like in public like this from a distance with someone whom we will never personally meet hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because even those times that I am on Twitter, it feels like there's always some new rage about maybe someone has done something. And it's not like this is just the non-Christian sort of general public, but within kind of a Christian Twitter, that's the only Twitter that I really pay attention to, that this happens as well. And so we're not entirely immune to this. And should we really be engaging in that sort of behavior? And I say we as in Christian Twitter or other forms of social media or wherever else this may be happening. Yeah. And that's not to say like you can't criticize bad ideas. Like totally, I think there are totally. forums where that's appropriate, right? But there's a big difference between that um, and like participating in like the big social media pile on where you're like calling for someone to lose their livelihood and tagging in their employer. And, you know, we know the whole deal. Um, yeah. Someone again who if you had happened to be logged off hiking for three days and never heard about this controversy, your life would have been no worse because, again, it had nothing to do with you. And even if it's not loss of job, it could be loss of other things. Mm. Um, let's move to conspiracy theories. Um, that's an interesting statement. <laughs> let's move to conspiracy theories. Yeah. So you call this schemes in the book. 
Um, mm-hmm. That's the chapter where you deal with this. How are we experiencing a knowledge crisis in with with respect to conspiracy theories? Yeah. I mean, the biggest distinction that I want to make there is that it's really not about discrete theories. Um, sometimes conspiracy theories are right. Like, you know, there, there have been conspiracy theories that are right. Um, the, the 1970s where there was the, the church commission in Congress, there were like official, um, government and like big newspaper revelations of conspiracies and people who had theories about those were right. Um, so sometimes conspiracy, conspiracies do happen. Sometimes conspiracy theories are correct. Um, I think more often than not, they're wrong, but you know, as a category, many people will talk about it as like completely Ill- illegitimate as if there's never been a, a conspiracy in the world there has. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the problem here, what what really contributes to our knowledge crisis is not, you know, someone believes a conspiracy theory, um, a discrete theory. The problem is, um, and I, I borrow this from another book that I talk about, um, uh, the idea of conspiracism as a mindset, where it's it's sort of a, a whole mental habit, um, where you, you don't it's it's at once very gullible, um, very trusting of of assertions, often without any evidence at all, that play into your preconceived notions, um, but also very cynical. So anything, no matter how good the evidence that you don't want to believe, can just be rejected out of hand. Um, it's it's sort of just like a, a way of looking at the world where you're assuming that that everything bad that happens, you know, it, it's because there's a conspiracy, there's there's hidden conspirators. And if you can just uncover those bad people and stop them from doing their bad things, then everything will be good and fine. And you can see the appeal in that, right? Because there are a lot of bad things in the world. And if the and if the problem was just a few bad people doing those bad things secretly um well it's like not that hard to stop them right you just got to figure out who they are and this in most conspiracist selling isn't that isn't that difficult to do it's mainly the president um and and his friends uh and so like i i understand the appeal um ultimately i think it's it's a very corrupting way of like intellectually corrupting way of looking at the world though and in a sense um, very easy and comforting and lazy, right? Uh, because rather than confronting the actual reality, which is that there's tons of bad stuff out in the open, it's all really complicated and really hard to solve. You personally are never going to solve it. You personally will probably never know exactly whose fault it is um, in many cases. It's this tidy little story and you get to play the hero because you're the one spreading the truth about it. Um, and that, I think really messes up how we think about things and how we process information. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, and one of the effects of, uh, I, I know someone who, uh, uh, so from some folks on this, who listen to this podcast will actually know this individual. He used to go to our church, Max Paxwell. Uh, he's an English professor and he's used conspiracy theories as like a subject for a uh, introductory uh, what is it like English composition course as like his subject mm-hmm. matter. And so he and I would talk about this a little bit, but basically one of the effects of conspiracy theories is that it, it kind of gives you a sense of self-importance and like you're in the know, almost like a, a Gnostic tendency. Like you have access to the secret knowledge that is redemptive. It can really, it's the keys to sort of like save the world as you were kind of saying. And so it can kind of feed into one, our, sense of wanting to just have simple answers there's a clear black and white right and wrong bad guys good guys but also like we are significant 
role uh, role player in in this drama. Um, how is Christians then ought to we ought we to respond to uh, the knowledge crisis in terms of conspiracy theories? What are, what some sort of Christian resources do we have to navigate this differently? Yeah. The best advice that I got on this um, came from a pastor I interviewed, and, and he had been dealing with um, a lot of conspiracism around uh, QAnon, the QAnon movement, um, including in his congregation. And and his single biggest piece of advice um, that really stuck with me was, you know, if you have, well, number two things. Number one was don't argue with people, um, because the a person who's really into this, um, this mindset it's not really something you can argue them out of because it's very malleable. Um, it, it's not sort of like we think about like the X-Files conspiracy theorist with like the the very complicated, intricate theory. And they've got like the classified documents and they're meeting in the parking garage and they're getting the information. That's not how it works for most people who, are, who have fallen into this mindset. Um, it really doesn't depend on specific facts. They're, they're, they don't have any classified documents. They're just like making up and passing along and trading assertions um, drawn from headlines. And so if, if one thing doesn't pan out, they move on to the next. Arguing is is utterly futile um, because they will always have, you know, five answers for every one fact check you do. Or they'll just abandon it and move on to a new claim entirely. You'll never catch up. Um, but the other thing this pastor advised that, that I thought was was very wise was, if, and this is a big if, if you are in a place relationally with a person who you think has fallen into conspiracism, where like the relationship is otherwise strong, like you can't just do this with someone that you see almost never, you can't do it with someone that the only conversations you ever have with them is arguing about politics, like there has to be a, a pre-existing relationship there where you actually value each other and value each other's opinions. Um, if you are in that space with someone, asking them, like, what is the fruit of this thinking in your life? Is it making you kinder? Is it making you more loving? Is it strengthening your relationships with your family? Is it helping you serve better in your church? Is it, you know, increasing, growing you in your faith? Um, and if they are in the right place to like honestly receive that question and consider it, generally speaking, the answer should be pretty clear to them that it is it is not producing good fruit. Um, and so, again, that's that can be a difficult place I think to get to where you can even ask that question. Um, and so for a lot of us, what it looks like is trying to have a relationship where it's not <laughs> like overwhelming your life with assertions of, of wild stuff that has no basis in reality, right? But that is preserving a, a, a positive relationship so that maybe someday you'll be able to have that, that conversation that sort of helps them get outside of that mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, let's talk now about what some call the death of the expert or sort of this rejection of expertise. So whether that's the expertise of journalists, the medical professionals, scientists, we might even include pastors and theologians. How are we experiencing the knowledge crisis in terms of the death of the expert? It's a few, it's a few things. Um, in some cases, like with, with journalists, there really has been a decline of, of what we once called the beat reporter, where someone wrote only about a single subject matter, um, and become very knowledgeable in that subject matter and could really provide a degree of expertise that 
you know, if you can only afford to pay three reporters at your small newspaper, you, they can't be on beats. They have to all do a little bit of everything. And that's unfortunate. So that's part of it. Some of it is about um, people who do have real expertise uh, handling it poorly in public. Um, and we saw a lot of this in the last few years um, where, you know, people who had had real public health knowledge, especially um let's just say did not communicate that in a very good way to the public. Uh, mm -hmm. There was some some noble lies going on. There was some do as I say, not as I do going on. And mm -hmm. none of those, that, that poor behavior uh, negated the fact that these people really did have public health expertise. Like they really right. had gone to medical school, right? They really do know way more than I know about like the human body and how it works and how to prevent infection. Um, but being a doctor, for instance, does not make you a good public communicator um, and does not necessarily mean that you have good judgment about uh, what information the public can and should be trusted to handle. Um, and it doesn't necessarily make you honest. And so that poor expert behavior is part of it as well. Mm. But a really big part of it also is the public um, imagining that we know better when we don't. Um, and this too really goes back to <laughs> just the the overwhelming amount of information that we can access via the internet um you know we joke about like i'm going to consult dr google right like but the people do this quite seriously like we think that we can google something and then we know better um and the reality is that very frequently we don't um and at the same time there's this part of it is is setting ourselves up to know better and part of it is um just dismissing and, and not having respect for um, expertise as a concept and experts as a concept. And so it's sort of tied up in like an anti-elitism of, you know, you can't tell me what to do. You don't know better than me. I don't trust the experts or the so-called experts. Um, but I think the the reality is that, and, and the reason why that, that simply doesn't work um, is that we live in a very complex specialized society and like we we do need experts like we we do rely on expertise and we think about this frequently in terms of like academics and, and officials and things like that but the reality is you, you rely on expertise all day every day every time you drive on a bridge you're relying on the expertise of strangers whose work you are not competent to evaluate um and we have to do that in all kinds of areas of our lives um, we need experts we have to have experts and they have to be trustworthy and we have to be willing to trust them and so the death of expertise and, and as i said there's a lot of faults that go around um but it's a it's a real problem we, we can't we can't function as a society without some degree of trust here um, in people who do know better than us yeah i think sometimes this one this observation overlaps with the conspiracy theory one where mm -hmm. sometimes i hear people um Oftentimes when I've heard people articulate conspiracy theories, um, it's often not so much presented as look at this hard fact, look at this hard fact, look at this hard fact, but more posed as just a series of raising questions mm -hmm. and sort of suggestive comments of things that may be the case. And then normally there's a comment like, do your research, but there's mm -hmm. sort of insinuations being made. And do your research means like watch my YouTube video. <laughs> right, exactly. And so there's like, but it's not like a, I, I have this hard fact, this mm -hmm. hard fact, and we can put that together. It's kind of like, this may be the case, or this is a little odd, don't you think? It's very suggestive. Mm -hmm. And 
And sometimes I think um, even Christians, like we can fall prey to this because we understand a doctrine of sin. It makes us sort of maybe skeptical of people in our, in a healthy way. There's sort of a healthy sort form of skepticism that can mm-hmm. then run on overdrive where we then start to treat skepticism as an argument in itself. Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, what about this? This could be happening. And therefore that's actually an, we're actually like, that's taking the place of an argument as if it really is happening just because people are sinful and therefore corruption happens. Therefore, we should just assume corruption is necessarily happening in this case, even though we don't have any evidence to show for Mm it. Um, Or in the case of expertise, we say, well, experts can be wrong, which of course they can be, Um, which is also why you have a multitude of experts in peer review and things like that, which should hopefully catch it and they have some self-interest in catching it. Um, But nonetheless, there can be this form where skepticism itself functions in the place of actual facts as if that is a good argument in itself. Um, Or I think the other thing too is, yes, like, like, let's think about COVID. You were alluding to COVID and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're alluding to folks like Fauci and like who have expertise, but maybe didn't necessarily exercise it all the, the right ways. Maybe you didn't <laughs> intend to name drop him, but I just did. Um, <laughs> I think in your book, you mentioned him by name, but I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there can be like during COVID, for instance, it's a good example where there was a lot of new, and I'm speaking out of my own expertise here. <laughs> so, um, but there was a lot of like, a lot of new stuff happening as best as I could tell in the medical community was sort of figuring things out. And they would have admittedly said, we don't necessarily have all the, like, we're going to learn. Like there, there was at one point they told us not to wear masks and later they did tell us to wear masks. And even now there's probably new data on which masks were actually effective. And I don't really know what the updated consensus is. But the point is there, we can always look to experts and say, look, you didn't have this right or, or what have you. But most people aren't willing to recognize that yes, although experts can be wrong and they grow in their knowledge and all that sort of stuff, the alternative to rejecting them is to simply make yourself the expert or make some yeah. something else that's not really an expert an expert. So even if the expert could be wrong, it's mm-hmm. still your best option um, compared <laughs> to the alternatives, you might say. Yeah, well, I mean, the expert being wrong doesn't make you right. Exactly. Um, is, is one important thing to remember. And the other important thing to remember, I think, is... Um, sometimes we fail to distinguish, and this is very related to like the, is the media lying to you or do they just make honest mistakes argument, right? Sometimes we fail to distinguish between um, like correct, like the corrective process of science mm-hmm. in particular, mm-hmm. but lots of things, right? Like we, we learn and, and correct ourselves um, and like actual errors and malfeasance. Um, and because of the way so much happens in public now and and covid was especially weird in this regard because it, it was so public and it was so quick it doesn't it didn't feel quick at the time but you know it, objectively it was quick um sort of th- those developments were happening in public and so we were seeing the trial and error where in times past perhaps all of that would have happened behind closed doors and they would have come out and presented us after six months or a year or two with like we've reached the conclusion and we all agree this is what it is right, um, right. when it all happens out in public and you see differing opinions and you see different experts arguing with each other um, like all of that is is good actually like that they're working through things and arguing with right. each other but it's really messy to watch and if you don't have the expertise to like parse what's going on and like follow the debate like 
actually knowledgeably, which most of us don't. And if you don't have the patience to, to do that because, you know, you're stuck in your house with your children, um, that looks terrible. And it's, you know, it's easy to just say, well, you know, write them off. They don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or cherry pick the one that find an expert that, that confirms yeah, who what agrees you with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so then how should we as Christians respond uh, to this particular area of the knowledge crisis? What do our Christian resources provide us in, in maybe navigating this in healthier ways? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on whether you sort of find yourself operating in the mode of expert or public, and we all do a little bit of each. Um, I mean, as when we're, when we're being the experts, I think a, a lot of it is really just about like honesty and, um, and transparency with the people that we're guiding um, trusting, trusting people, um, with information and, and trusting that adults can, can handle complex things. And, and, you know, sometimes they might not handle it as well as you wish, but, um, but that, that call to, to honesty and accountability that, you know, I think scripture has lots of that sort of thing for, for leaders in general and experts are a type of leaders. Um, and then on the other side of things, when we're, when we're in the non-expert role, um, some of it is about like offering some grace for, for learning and improvement, um, and not, you know, not being mushy on actual deception, right? Like, I don't think that experts should be telling noble lies. Um, but you know, when letting, letting experts correct themselves, um, letting them gain knowledge and, and learn and grow and not holding grudges about that essentially forever, mm-hmm. um, it, there's an element of of forgiveness here as well. Yeah, and um, humility too to recognize mm-hmm. your own limitations, your own lack of knowledge and lack of expertise. Yeah, um, absolutely. We there. There's another chapter. I thought we don't, probably won't have time for this, but I'll just allude to it in fo- case folks want to pick up your book. Um, is there's there's another chapter, for instance on emotion and an additional one on experience the idea of experience being like people oftentimes appeal to their experience as almost like a trump card and how that mm-hmm. can be very damaging to our ability to pursue truth um but maybe let's enter kind of the the final stage here of of our interview and, and think through some practical things um what are some things that we can personally do to develop healthier approaches to knowledge, uh, a practical epistemology, as you call it in the book. Yeah. So at the in those final chapters, I, I kind of have like sort of, well, there's three chapters. <laughs> They're concerned with sort of like three steps of this. The, the first one, the, the one that's called a practical, a practical epistemology, um, is really about returning, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit already, returning to an older model of epistemology, which is the, the branch of philosophy that's concerned with how do we gain knowledge um, and how do we know what is true? And the way that like modern academic epistemology is is um, much more esoteric. It's a, it's a lot of like um, almost like word problems, if you will. Um, but the way that epistemology used to work was it was very focused on virtue. And essentially, how do you become the sort of person who recognizes truth and who um, knows how to interrogate information and figure out what is true or not, what is accurate. Um, how do you become someone who acquires knowledge well? And so uh, the the virtues of epistemology, epistemic virtues, these are things like studiousness and intellectual honesty and wisdom. 
Um, and these are not things that we can just sort of like decide to have. I mean, that would be great, but you can't do that. You can't just decide to have a virtue or we would all decide that all the time and we'd all be super virtuous. Um, but they are things, virtues are things that you can, you know, pursue and, and work to cultivate in yourself with God's help, with the help of your, your church community and, and people who are discipling you. Um, and so once we've sort of set that as our aim and said, like, I want to become epistemically virtuous. I want to become a virtuous seeker of knowledge, someone who is really concerned with pursuing truth um, and recognizing truth when I encounter it. Then the question is, right, so how do you do that? Um, and at the individual level, and, and most of what we'll be doing or what we can do here is, is concerned with ourselves because you can't, you can't make other people pursue virtues for the most part. Um, if you're dealing with your kids, you can like obviously arrange your household and, and make your rules and, and set your expectations in ways that that encourage that. Um, but as they get older, and especially as you're dealing with other adults, you, you can't force people to do this for themselves. Like it's for the most part something that you're you're doing for yourself. Um, and a lot of it is really about habits. Um, habits are the they shape our day-to-day -day lives and they can create spaces in which those virtues can grow. Um, and so a lot of what I go through is, is thinking about what are your habits as you're engaging with um, information and truth claims and um, various media and digital devices day in and day out. And are those habits conducive for building virtue or are they really undermining you in that effort? Are they making you more confused? Are they making it harder for you to identify deception? Um, and the reason, a big reason that I take this approach is that, um, you know, there's so much of like, uh, here are five steps to figure out that this is disinformation, but things aren't, things change all the time, right? Like those kind of steps, those, those are not going to last you long-term. What mm -hmm. is potentially going to last you long-term is becoming a, the sort of person who knows what truth is like, who is able to recognize it when you encounter it. Um, and that's where habits that are conducive to virtue come in. Um, and then the last chapter is thinking a little bit more about um, like other people uh, insofar as we can affect what they do about this. Um, and especially people that we think are in trouble here. Um, people who, you know, maybe we do think their brains are getting a little bit broken um, and how we can maintain our relationships with them and hopefully do so in a way that um, invites them out of their worst habits and their worst patterns of thought and their worst ways of uh, engaging with and fixating on and um, spending so much time on, you know, bad knowledge claims, bad truth claims, um, just, you know, low quality garbage media that's corrupting how they think, especially if it's to the detriment of other better things in their lives, you know, their faith, their relationships with their family and friends. Um, and, and those recommendations, which are also a lot of habits as well, essentially, um, are not like send your friend a fact check. It's much more like invite your friend over for dinner where you're not on your phones. And that's a win for both of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I like how you frame it in terms of virtue. It reminds me of the end of Athanasius's book on the incarnation. Athanasius was from the early centuries of the church writing a book on Christ's incarnation. Um, 
And he ends the book by actually talking a bit about how virtue plays into our ability to understand. Um, yeah. You might call it like a hermeneutic of virtue, um, where he, he talks about the ability to really grasp things is contingent on our, 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 the condition of our heart. And we, in our modern world, we tend to think about knowledge and our ability to understand is just sort of this, like, like we're brains on a stick and we just kind of come across the information and, and absorb it. But to realize that the condition of our heart really does affect um, our, our, the, wh- how we understand, what we choose to understand, how we go about fostering true understanding. Um, and, and one of the difficulties is that we can often, those who are susceptible to, the, to these things, and we're all susceptible to greater or lesser degrees living in the world we do and with the hearts that we have. Um, but oftentimes one of the, one of the really difficult things about this discussion, this topic is that if you are falling prey, for instance, to a conspiracy theory, you probably don't think you are. Or, you know, mm-hmm. when we fall prey to these things, they become self-deceptive. We become willfully ignorant. And so that's where we really need the church community. We need other people in our lives who can kind of help us and and we can hold each other accountable. I think of, maybe I'll close with this, but I think of this passage from James, James chapter three, where it talks about the wisdom from above contrasted with the wisdom um, from below, um, a, a more of a demonic um, wisdom and really thinking about we could do kind of a you could kind of do a self inventory on does this describe me does my life cultivate these sort of uh, traits this sort of wisdom from above as I go about and try to understand uh, and pursue knowledge James says in chapter three verses thirteen who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his work works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So think about, is my life exhibiting bitter jealousy and ambition? Is that really going to help me foster wisdom and understanding? No, James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We can ask ourselves, like, are those the sort of motivations behind how I engage social media or how I engage traditional media or why I believe a conspiracy theory or what have you, like map those things on. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace that if we're cultivating these sort of things that's going to foster and put us into a position of having wisdom and pursuing understanding in a healthy way thanks so much for joining us bonnie it was a pleasure being able to speak with you yeah, thank you. I'm going to have to look up that. Uh, I know I've read some Athanasius, but not that one. I'm going to have to look that up. Oh, it's fantastic. you got to read it. So I'm excited, too. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.